Section 12 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, The Council of Trent, Part 5. The Cardinal of Lorraine had left Trent for Innsbruck, with threats of a Gallican synod on his lips. Ferdinand I had arrived there, very wroth with the council, and received the Bishop of Zante, Comendone, whom the legate sent to deprecate his vexation, with marked coolness. The remedies proposed to the emperor by the cardinal were drastic enough. The council was to be swamped by French, German, and Spanish bishops, and the emperor, by repairing to Trent in person, was to awe the assembly into discussing the desired reforms, whether with or without the approval of the legates. But Ferdinand I, by nature moderate in action, and taught by the example of his brother Charles V, the danger of violent courses, preferred to resort to a series of direct and by no means tame appeals to the Pope. The latter, indisposed as he was to support a fresh proposition for the removal of the council to some German town, urged by France but resisted by Spain, which at the same time persistently opposed the concession of the cup demanded by both France and the Emperor, saw his opportunity for taking his adversary singly. The deaths about this time, March 1563, of the presiding legate, Cardinal Gonzaga, and of his colleague, Cardinal Setipando, both of whom had occasionally shown themselves inclined to yield to the reforming party, were likewise in his favor. Their places were filled by Cardinals Morone, formerly a prisoner indicted by the Inquisition, now an eager champion of papal claims, and Navagero, a Venetian by birth, but not in his political sentiments. Morone, though he had left Rome almost despairing of any favorable issue of the council, at once began to negotiate with the emperor through the Jesuit Canisius. The leverage employed may, in addition to the distrust between Ferdinand and his Spanish nephew, and the ancient jealousy between Austria and France, have included some reference to the heterodox opinions and the consequently doubtful prospects of the emperor's eldest son, Maximilian. In a word, the papal government about this time formed and carried out a definite plan for inducing the emperor to abandon his conciliar policy. The consideration offered for his assenting to a speedy termination of the council was the promise that, so soon as that event should have taken place, the desired concession of the cup should be made to his subjects. Ferdinand I, without becoming a thorough-going partisan of the papal policy, accepted the bargain as seemingly the shortest road to the end, which, for the sake of the peace of the empire, he had at heart. Thus, notwithstanding the continued opposition of the French bishops, the decrees concerning the episcopate began to shape themselves more easily, and the Pope of his own accord submitted to the council certain canons of a stringent kind, reforming in a similar way the discipline of the cardinalate in June. And when in the course of a violent quarrel about precedence between the kings of France and Spain, the latter, enraged at his demands not being enforced by the Pope, had threatened by insisting on the admission of Protestants to the council indefinitely to prolong it, the emperor intervened against the proposal. 
but the conflict between the papal and the episcopal authority seemed still incapable of solution, and though Lyonnais audaciously demanded the reference of all questions of reform to the sole decision of the Pope, and denounced the opposition of the French bishops as proceeding from members of a schismatic church, this opposition steadily continued in conjunction with that of the Spaniards, and still found a leader in the Cardinal of Lorraine. Yet at this very time a change began to be perceptible in the conduct of this versatile and ambitious prelate. The cardinal was supposed to have himself aspired to the office of presiding legate, and though he had missed this place of honor and power, the condition of things in France was such as naturally to incline him to the direction of Rome. The assassination of his brother, Francis, Duke of Guise, February 1563, deprived his family and interest of their natural chief, and inclined Catherine de' Medici to transact with the Huguenots. The cardinal accordingly became anxious at the same time to return to France and prevent the total eclipse of the influence he had hitherto exercised at court, and to secure himself by an understanding with the Pope. A letter which about this time arrived from Mary Queen of Scots, declaring her readiness to submit to the decrees of the council, and should she ascend the throne of England, to reduce that country to obedience to the Holy See, may perhaps be connected with these overtures. Pius IV, delighted to meet the cardinal halfway, sent instructions in this sense to the legates, whom the recent display of Spanish arrogance had already disposed favorably toward France. Thus the decree on the sacrament of orders was passed in the colorless condition desired by the papal party in a session held on July 15th, the Spanish bishops angrily declaring themselves betrayed by the French cardinal. Other decrees were passed in this memorable session, among them one of substantial importance for the establishment of diocesan seminaries for priests. Clearly the council had now become tractable, and might speedily be brought to an end. In this sense, the Pope addressed urgent letters to the three great Catholic monarchs, and found willing listeners, except in Spain. Meanwhile, the remaining decrees, both of doctrine and of discipline, were eagerly pushed on. The sacrament of marriage gave rise to much discussion, but the proposal that the marriage of priests should be permitted, though formerly included in both the imperial and the French libel, was now advocated only by the two prelates who spoke directly in the name of the emperor. But in the decree proposed on the all-important subject of the reformation of the life and morals of the clergy, the legates presumed too far on the yielding mood of the governments. It not only contained many admirable reforms as to the conditions under which spiritual offices, from the cardinalate downwards, were to be held or conferred, but the papacy had wisely and generously surrendered many existing usages profitable to itself. At the same time, however, it was proposed not only to deprive the royal authority and the several states of a series of analogous profits, but to take away from it the nomination of bishops and the right of citing ecclesiastics before a secular tribunal. To the protests which the ambassadors of the powers inevitably raised against these proposals, the legates replied by raising a cry that the reformation of the princes should be comprehended in the decrees. 
it became necessary to postpone the objectionable article. But now the fears of the supporters of the existing system began to be excited, both at Rome and at Trent, and it was contrived to introduce so many modifications into the proposed decree as seriously to impair its value. Then, though the Cardinal of Lorraine himself, during a visit to Rome in September, showed his readiness to support the papal policy, the French ambassadors at the council carried their opposition to its encroachments upon the claims of their sovereign so far as to withdraw to Venice. And above all, the Spanish bishops upheld by the persistency of their king stood firmly by the original form of the Reformation decree and finally obtained its restoration to a very considerable extent. Thus the greater portion of the decree was at last passed in the penultimate session of the Council, 11th November. With the exception of Spain, all the powers now made known their consent to winding up the business of the Council without further loss of time. But Count Luna still immovably resisted the closing of the Council before the express assent of King Philip should have been received, nor was it till the news, authentic or not, arrived of a serious illness having befallen the Pope, that the fear of the complications which might arise in the event of his death put an end to further delay. Summoned in all haste, the fathers met on December 3rd for their five-and-twentieth session, and on this and the following day rapidly discussed a series of decrees, some of which were by no means devoid of intrinsic importance. In the doctrinal decrees concerning purgatory and indulgences, as in those concerning the invocation of saints, and the respect due to their relics and images, it was sought to preclude a reckless exaggeration or distortion of the doctrines of the Church on these heads, and a corrupt perversion of the usages connected with them. Thus the abuse of the so-called privileged altars was not revived till the papacy of Gregory Thirteenth. Of the disciplinary decrees, the most important and elaborate related to the religious of both sexes. It contained a clause inserted on the motion of Lainess, which the Jesuits afterwards interpreted as generally exempting their society from the operation of this decree. Another decree enjoined sobriety and moderation in the use of the ecclesiastical penalty of excommunication. For the rest, all possible expedition was used in gathering up the threads of the work done or attempted by the Council. The determination of the index as well as the revision of missal, breviary, ritual, and catechism, were remitted to the Pope. Then the decrees debated in the last session and at its adjourned meeting were adopted, being subscribed by 234, or was it 255, ecclesiastics, and the decrees passed in the sessions of the Council before its reassembling under Pope Pius IV were read over again, and thus its continuity, 1545 to 1563, was established without any use being made of the terms approbation and confirmation. A decree followed, composed by the Cardinal of Lorraine and Cardinal Madruccio, solemnly commending the ordinances of the Council to the Church and to the Princes of Christendom, and remitting any difficulties concerning the execution of the decrees to the Pope, who would provide for it either by summoning another general council or as he might determine. 
a concluding decree put an end to the council itself, which closed with a kind of general thanksgiving intoned by the Cardinal of Lorraine. The decrees of the council were shortly afterwards, 26th January, 1564, ratified by Pius IV, against the wish of the more determined curialists, while others would have wished him to guard himself by certain restrictions. These were, however, unnecessary, as he reserved to himself the interpretation of doubtful or disputed decrees. This reservation remained absolute as to decrees concerning dogma. For the interpretation of those concerning discipline, Sixtus V afterwards appointed a special commission under the name of the Congregation of the Council of Trent, while the former became ipso facto binding on the entire church, the decrees on discipline and reformation could not become valid in any particular state till after they had been published in it with the consent of its government. This distinction is of the greatest importance. The doctrinal system of the Church of Rome was now enduringly fixed. The area which the Church had lost she could henceforth only recover if she reconquered it. Many attempts at reunion by compromise have since been made from the Protestant side, and some of these have perhaps been met halfway by the generous wishes of not a few Catholics. But the Council of Trent has doomed all these projects to inevitable sterility. The gain of the Church of Rome from her acquisition at Trent of a clearly and sharply defined body of doctrine is not open to dispute, except from a point of view which her doctors have steadily repudiated. And it is difficult to suppose, but that in her conflict with the spirit of criticism, which from the first in some measure animated the Protestant Reformation, and afterwards urged it far beyond its original scope, the Church of Rome must have proved an unequal combatant had not the Council of Trent renewed the foundations of the authority claimed by herself and of that claimed by her head on earth. The effect of the disciplinary decrees of the Council, though more far-reaching and enduring than has been on all sides acknowledged, was necessarily in the first instance dependent on the reception given to them by the several Catholic powers. The representatives of the Emperor at once signed the whole of the decrees of the Council, though only on behalf of his hereditary dominions, and he had his promised reward when a few months afterwards, in April, the German bishops were under certain restrictions empowered to accord the cup in the Eucharist to the laity. But neither the empire through its diet nor Hungary ever accepted the Tridentine decrees, though several of the Catholic estates of the empire, both spiritual and temporal, individually accepted them with modifications. The example of Ferdinand was followed by several other powers, but in Poland the Diet to which the decrees were twice, in 1564 and 1578, presented as having been accepted by King Sigismund Augustus, refused to accord its own acceptance, maintaining that the Polish Church, as such, had never been represented at the Council. In Portugal and in the Swiss Catholic cantons, the decrees were received without hesitation, as also by the Seigneury of Venice, whose representatives at Trent had rarely departed from an attitude of studied moderation, and who now merely safeguarded the rights of the Republic. 
True to the part recently played by him, the Cardinal of Lorraine, on his own responsibility, subscribed to the decrees in the name of the King of France. But the Parliament of Paris was on the alert, and on his return home, the Cardinal had to withdraw in disgrace to Reims. Neither the doctrinal decrees of the Council nor the disciplinary, which in part clashed with the customs of the kingdom and the privileges of the Gallican Church, were ever published in France. The ambassador of Spain, whose king and prelates had so consistently held out against the closing of the council, refused his signature till he had received express instructions. Yet, as it was Spain which had hoped and toiled for the achievement of the council of solid results, so it was here that the decrees fell on the most grateful soil, when, after considerable deliberation and delay, their publication at last took place accompanied by stringent safeguards as to the rights of the king and the usages of his subjects, 1565. The same course was adopted in the Italian and Flemish dependencies of the Spanish monarchy. The disciplinary decrees of the council on the whole fell short in completeness of the doctrinal, but while they consistently maintained the papal authority and confirmed its formal pretensions, the episcopal authority, too, was strengthened by them, not only as against the monastic orders, but in its own moral foundations. More than this, the whole priesthood from the Pope downwards benefited by the warnings that had been administered, by the sacrifices that had been made, and by the reforms that had been agreed upon. The Church became more united, less worldly, and more dependent on itself. These results outlasted the movement known as the Counter-Reformation and should be ignored by no candid mind. End of Section 12